Good morning, everyone. So it is um, my profound pleasure and honor to um, welcome our guests this, this morning that um, are kind enough to join us and, and offer us some teachings. Um, so uh, welcome to Taiga Ito and Galen Godwin. And where is Galen? I can't see it. Oh, there she is. There you are. Hi. <laughs> so it's um, my pleasure to first introduce Galen. Um, for the communities, for those who don't know her, she is the um, abbot of Houston Zen Center. She is also the, cent the um, director of the Center of Soto, in of International Center of Soto Zen in North America, which is an educational and uh, cultural, educational outreach department of Soto Zen headquarters in Japan. And um, Galen has the honor of being the first woman, as well as the first person from the West to hold this position of director. So we're all very thrilled about that. Um, Galen was uh, transmitted uh, by Rev. Anderson in 2003. And in 2005, she received formal recognition uh, of, in Japan. And um, and in a very um, personal way, I just wanted to introduce my relationship to Galen. So when I was an early student at Tassajara, Galen was director. And now I'm a director here at this um, new monastery. And I think often about you, Galen, and all of the care and the skill and the clarity that you offered me in my messy first years of practice. <laughs> And I keep those with me and, um, and use them as important information as I try to um, support all the incredible students we have in this Sangha. And um, Galen continues to be an important teacher, not just for myself, but for uh, Kosen. So you've been uh, an incredibly generous teacher, mentor, guide friend to us as we um, try to uh, keep supporting uh, Dharma here in, in Brooklyn and upstate in the monastery. So thank you very much. And thank you also for supporting our board. So Galen has also generously um, helped us at particular moments um, in the board uh, uh, cultivation of, of this Sangha. So um, it's a, just a joy to have you. Thank you very much, Galen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Laura and Kosen, Roshi. Thank you so much for inviting us, Taiga Ito-san and me and Koyu, who also is part of the International Center office, is here. She usually has her camera off because her tiny toddler is around. So although he's so cute, it sort of becomes the Dharma talk when he's on. There she is, Koyu-san. <laughs> So happy to be here. I only wish I could be there in person to see you and have that feeling, but I, I love Brooklyn Zen Center and Ancestral Heart Zen Monastery has become a beacon for all of us, the courage and the integrity and hard work that you guys are putting in is really impressive, spreading through the whole Dharma realm. I wanted to start today by reading one of the verses from the Dhammapada First, I'll read one translation, verse 5. 
In this world, hate never dispelled, hate never yet dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. There's another translation. So we all seek to bring these things into our language. Verse 5. Animosity does not eradicate animosity. Only by loving kindness is animosity dissolved. This law is ancient and eternal. For me, the, the, the difference between those two translations is mostly around this word loving kindness, which we were mostly pretty familiar with as meta, so loving kindness. And I, my theory, I have to do some research into this, my theory is that loving kindness was used to translate that concept of, of metta because it has kind of an active feeling, loving kindness, going out and doing something. Um, but for me now, the word love is more powerful. So maybe just using the word love dispels hate or love in action. And for me here in, in Houston, Texas, uh, where things are much calmer than many of us were preparing for as we go through this this current period of not knowing. Uh, things are pretty calm. I've seen some irritation around, irritated behavior, but uh, nothing like what some people were speculating might be happening. Um, so this love that dispels hate is love. It's the love of the Buddha. It's Buddha's love flowing through everything and flowing through in ways that we recognize, ways that we have may, may miss, but it's the love that flows through that you see in the eyes of your, of your loved ones and your Sangha. And we see it in the air and the trees and the, our family members. We see it in various ways, this love that flows through and dispels hate. The other part of this, um, well, what I, I guess I want to say a little tiny bit more about Houston, Texas, because in our, well, no, first I want to say something about karma. Thank you. This is my mind in action. Um, this teaching of how to work with animosity or hate, on, about how it's dispelled, only love dispels hate, only love dissolves hate is another translation this is also a teaching of karma. And in our, in our way, in our Buddhist way, in the way of the Buddha, uh, karma is always in the background. It's like the little key that unlocks all these teachings. When you, when you kind of understand that, as I'm sure many of you do, or most of you, or all of you do, when we understand that karma is the, such an important teaching, it unlocks all these teachings. This is a teaching of karma. And when we think of uh, uh, the karmic consequences of how we've gotten here, sometimes people think like um, the teachings of the Buddha are over here, and then karma is one of those teachings. Karma is the teaching that goes through all of these things. So in our world over here in Texas, one of the karmic consequences that we're quite alive to in our, I heard Professor Jan Willis say the other day, our post-George Floyd world, 
which is a great concept, our post-George Floyd world, we're watching, as I said, there's some irritation. There's a lot of suffering around in, in Texas and in Houston. And what we're observing are the karmic consequences of um, systemic racism and the health consequences of the pandemic being delivered disproportionately on black people, people of color, because of our systemic racism. And being alive to that is really, really impacting all of Houston. So what I really want to talk about today, so now my Dharma talk is beginning. What I really want to talk about today is faith and how all this works. So there's this ancient teaching called uh, Awakening Faith in the Mahayana, which I have been studying. Awakening, a treatise on awakening Mahayana faith. And faith is one of those words that also, like loving kindness and love and uh, um, metta, all of these are in play. We get to, we're still working with these words and these concepts, and we will be forever. But the word that's being translated there in the ancient sutras is shraddha. And early translators of Buddhist treatises started using the word faith because it's a powerful force. It's one of the forces, one of the um, elements of enlightenment, one of the seven wings of enlightenment. It's a powerful force in our human continuum. And in order to ease our Western minds, our Western minds have many associations with the word faith. So in order to ease it, this translator likes to use the word trust. So it's kind of sneaking up on us, you know. Try trust. Can you trust in the Mahayana? Because the teachings of karma, the teachings of the Buddha's love, are teachings about method. Another thing that Professor Willis said in the talk I I heard the other day here in Rice, she was invited to give a talk at our local university, but she had to stay in her home in Georgia. But we here in Houston were listening to her live she said that um, as a black Buddhist Baptist, the teaching of, of uh, liberation in her Baptist church was very profound. She even sang a gospel song for us, very profound. Liberation was highly valued and sought and taught and demonstrated. And then Buddhism offered her methods for liberation. So these teachings of karma are part of that. They're methods for us to open up to the love that's flowing through everything. So faith or trust means opening to the way this all works. So when, when we're... When I'm irritated, I saw some irritation out here in Houston yesterday. No, day before yesterday, I saw an irritated interaction. doesn't matter what it was. I saw the irritation happen, and I stood and watched to make sure it would all go okay. But in us, we brave Buddhists, we know that when irritation arises, we do have to work on, on this being, irritation arising in me. 
that's part of the beginning of the trust and faith in the Mahayana. Where do we begin our work? I'll say more about the kind of like irritation or anger maybe later on, but for now, um, trust and faith in how that works gives us an entryway into how to work with this situation that we're in that's isolating us and separating us. The treatise that I've been studying is itself fun to read and interesting because it was written in, in China a few hundred years after uh, Buddhism arrived or maybe just a 200 years after Buddhism first entered China. And Buddhism, the practice of these liberating techniques, these techniques of liberation, is very radical. It was radical in India, extremely radical in China, radical when Dogen Zenji brought Zen to Japan, and radical when it entered the U.S. It's still quite radical. So this treatise was written to try to help Chinese people understand, I think it was just known as the Middle Kingdom back then. It wasn't called China. That's labeling something backwards. But the um, this treatise is an effort to explain to Chinese people how to work with this liberative technique that came over and the importance of having trust before you fully had insight. So when they talk about the kind of insight that we're opening up to, it's the nature of mind. It's resting in the ultimate nature of mind, the clarity, the undisturbed, we say unborn quality of mind that's flowing through everything, that's experienced as Buddha's love, experienced as clarity. And that unborn nature, that ultimate nature of mind has been flowing since the very beginning. This morning as I was sitting in Zazen with you all, I was thinking that it's like the Big Bang. I'm really one of those people who every time there's something about um, astrophysics and cosmology, I, I'm totally drawn to it. So the Buddha's love, this clarity of mind, has been pervading the universe just like the Big Bang, still pervading, still inseparable from everything that happens everywhere. So that a, was a difficult, uh, uh, what would you say, teaching to deliver. And so treatises like this came up. It's one of the very, very early ones, just after the Lotus Sutra, beautiful sutra, and not um, presented as a sutra. So it's one of those that's not presented as something that came directly from the Buddha or channeled. It's actually an attempt by somebody to explain why this is so important. Because it's the Mahayana, it's trying to take us away from thinking no disparagement of the of the Theravada, the teaching of the ancestors, but it's trying to take us away from thinking that you have to really earn a lot of merit and then you will wake up. So just taking us over into thinking that can you trust the idea, can you have faith in the idea that that awakening clarity is already completely present in you and in everyone you meet and that there are things to do to help us uh, realize it, access it. 
So because it's Mahayana, those things to do are the six paramitas. Those things to do are generosity, ethics, patience, energy, meditation, and concentration. Those are the things that churn and cook and deepen throughout our practice life. But what these, this writer, uh, ancient writer, wanted to really talk about was the number five in the six paramitas, the meditation piece, which is what we Zen people are forever talking about also. We talk about all of them, but the meditation piece. So meditation in these in this generation of, of, of Buddhist teachings and in many still to this day means calming and discernment or calming and insight. So for these, for this, for us, we need both. We absolutely need both. We need calming meditation and we need discernment meditation. Calming meditation is itself just resting in that nature of mind. And then you could say an easy way to differentiate the two is that discernment is observing the things that disturb it. You could say that. And they're very clear. All these writers are clear that you don't just practice one. If you practice one, they're pretty strong about that. To just concentrate on only calming meditation or just concentrate on only insight meditation or discernment meditation is leads to failure, they say. And then the rest of the text is about uh, techniques for calming and techniques for insight. Let me look at something here. Absence of trust. One of the hindrances to resting in that calm mind and the hindrance to... Um, devoting effort to the discernment side is this absence of trust. And throughout the Mahayana teachings especially, but also in the Theravada teachings, that is pointed to. Our our lack of trust in our own nature, our lack of trust in the situation as a teaching, absence of faith that this will develop, that's that's the main shaking point in our practice. One of the things then that arose for me that I, I want to talk about now is um, a kind of a kind of uh, disturbance in the force field, a kind of disturbance in our field that we've been reading about in our uh, Dharma inquiry into race in America. Uh, we've done a lot of that. I know you guys have done a lot of that, and the impact of implicit teachings or implicit understandings that come through our culture and our minds are really strong. And part of what we do in the discernment process of meditation is to really open our understanding to those. And in order to open our understanding to those, we actually need teachings. We need Sangha. Sangha remains an equal part of the jewel throughout all of Buddhist teachings. We need Sangha to help us face, even to identify some of what disturbs our our access to our ultimate suchness of mind, calm mind. So I I just want to bring up a secular teaching 
by Claude Steele called Whistling Vivaldi. Have any of you seen this book? Ooh, I highly recommend it. It was recommended to me by one of our people in the Dharma Inquiry. Claude Steele is a, a scholar who got interested in many things, but partly um, why, for instance, you take a bunch of uh, white, smart math students and a bunch of black, smart math students, put them in the same situation, and in certain settings, black students will do more poorly. And you put uh, women in certain situations and tell them certain things that are being assessed and they will do poorly. So uh, this is called stereotype threat. It's when a stereotype that includes you is up, the stereotype threat will um, be implicated in you not doing so well. So this is really super important territory for all of us for us as teachers, because we, we need to know when those stereotypes are being invited into the room, and for us as individuals, because it's really helpful to know when one has been stimulated for you. So I'll just give you a couple of examples, but I highly recommend this book. For instance, um, in classrooms, he had access, Claude Steele has access to all sorts of students. He, he taught at a number of universities. He either still teaches at Stanford or has retired from Stanford. Um, and he himself experienced many of the stereotype threats. Um, so, for instance, the stereotype that black people are less good at math or even less intelligent than white people, when you put the same skill set people into a room and tell them it's a test of math ability, the black kids will do less well. If you put them in, in a room, same group of people or similar group of people, and say something else is being assessed, not math, not intelligence, they will do the same because the stereotype threat has not been brought into the mind. The same is true of girls and math. If you tell equally strong girl students and boy students that math ability is being assessed, the girls will do less well. If you tell them that, and in the other case also, everybody in this room does the same. This isn't black students and white students or girls and boys actually do equally well in this test. Um, but what this test is about, I don't know what, handwriting. I can't remember the examples, but the various stereotypes do equally well. They will do equally well because the stereotype has not been invoked. The same is true of, excuse me, of athleticism, where white athletes believe that black athletes are inherently better. And if you tell them that that is what's being assessed, white athletes will do less well. So what's happening? Claude Steele got interested in what's happening there in the brain. So with access to all these new measurement techniques, what's happening there? And this, I think, is very interesting for us as Buddhists. The whole thing is interesting, but what's happening there is that once the stereotype has been invoked for you, it takes a lot of energy to assess whether it, what its power is. So all of that energy is recruited 
to assess whether you are safe, uh, what other people think about you, etc. And so you don't have the same amount of energy available to solve the problems. It's simply a matter of taking over mental resources. So people whose stereotype has been invoked, you know, as Claude Steele says, we need to, they, they're trying to slay the ghost in the room instead of just solving the problem. For me, um, again, as I said, this is very important because you need to know when you've invoked that stereotype and just telling people, reminding people that they're one of those. Like if you have people check that they're a woman or have people check that they're black, um, the stereotype has been invoked. The antidotes that Claude Steele found, one of, here's one of my favorite ones because it's about sangha. The antidote in our culture tends to be, if, if you think that you're in a stereotype and you don't do as well as somebody else, our stereotype is, well, I've really got to focus. I've got to isolate myself. These students that he was really concerned about then felt like they had to cut off their social life, go into a room and just study, study, study. And he called that over-efforting, which actually under, undermines one's growth. The key, here's another stereotype that he invoked, why do Asian students do so well in math? They study together in groups. So he got his, his African-American um, math students to study in groups, although they didn't want to. They thought it would waste time. And several things got solved at the same time. One, you learn from other people's solutions. You share information. Oh, no, we're individualistic. I have to figure, I have to reinvent math all on my own. No, you share. And the other thing that worked even more in these groups of studying students was to include white students because the stereotype was that they were having an easy time of it. And so for the other students... Uh, they got to see that white kids were suffering and miserable also. And then that calmed the mind. So there's an example of discernment and bringing in a whole bunch of information. There's an example of how I work with my mind, and I hope you can use some of it, because if we don't know that stereotypes are being invoked, then we're really fighting a battle. We're, we're sitting there and these ghosts are up there. We're thinking about what other people are thinking about us. I'm a poor white person. What are they thinking about me? I'm a woman. I'm a whatever. Whatever stereotypes are being invoked for you, they take up mental energy. And I, I, I tell you that once you know about them, they have less power. They really do. Or you can just say hello to them when they're up and they will have less power. And... Now, our time, I, I, I want to now come back to this teaching of karma and introduce Reverend Taiga Ito, who's the assistant director of our center. One of the things that Soto Zen Buddhism, Buddhism is focusing on right now in our karmic world of total interdependence is our uh, impact on our planet and on each other. So the UN has developed these 17 sustainable development goals to 
address the imbalances in our in our world. So Soto Zen uh, headquarters has embraced this wholeheartedly because this is the world that we actually live in. And I'm going to read you the 17 of these goals. You will see. I was talking to one of our members, Ishin Glenn Snyder. I know some of you know him, who's in working in Japan now, and he does work in the oceans. And he said that they're very everybody in Japan is very aware of this, and that next year begins the 10-year focus on the oceans. So I know, or I theorize, or I have a bias, I have a stereotype that we Americans are pretty much just focused on what's going on in America right now. But I just want to assure you that a lot of people are thinking about the oceans. I don't mean to stereotype you. I'm sorry. But here are the uh, sustainable development goals, all 17 of them. One, end poverty in all its forms everywhere. Two, end hunger achieve food security and improve nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture. Three, ensure healthy lives and promote well-being for all at all ages. These are very lofty goals. They, they're giving us uh, another 30 years to accomplish these. Four, ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and promote lifelong learning opportunities for all. Five, Achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls. Six, ensure availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation for all. Seven, ensure access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern energy for all. Eight, promote sustained, inclusive, and sustainable economic growth, full and productive employment, and decent work for all. Nine, Build resilient infrastructure, promote inclusive and sustainable industrialization, and foster innovation. Ten, reduce inequality within and among countries. Eleven, make cities and human settlements inclusive, safe, resilient, and sustainable. Twelve, ensure sustainable consumption and production patterns. Thirteen, take urgent action to combat climate change and its impacts. 14, conserve and sustainably use the oceans, seas, and marine resources for sustainable development. 15, protect, restore, and promote sustainable use of terrestrial ecosystems, sustainably manage forests, combat desertification, and halt and reverse land degradation and halt biodiversity loss. 16, Promote peaceful and inclusive societies for sustainable development, provide access to justice for all, and build effective, accountable, and inclusive institutions at all levels. Finally, 17, strengthen the means of implementation and revitalize the global partnership for sustainable development. And now I'd like to introduce Reverend Taiga Ito, who's in California now, at home, because our office, we only use our office in San Mateo alternately. Koyusan and Taigasan go in alternately. Reverend Ito. Thank you, Konjin-san. Yeah, the Konjin-san told about the SDGs. Does anyone know SDGs? 
Yes, these signs, these are signs for SDGs. And for example, in Japan from since nine, 2009, the Soto Zen in Japan is saying protect human light and peace and environment, environment. So, and also I want share. You can see these. This is this is how we support the SDGs. About we had the World Buddhist Federation in Japan in 2018, and at that at that time, not only Soto Zen, all the Buddhist Buddhists in Japan call to support SDGs. So. That we think the old Buddhist, old Buddhist, because the teaching of Buddhism is so related with these goals. And for example, for our teaching, if we talk about the, uh, if we talk about the number, about the, Peace or gender equality. You know, there our teaching say that essentially there is not there there is not one thing. So that other teaches means we have nothing. Basically, we have nothing. So we. So it doesn't matter about the male or female or basically we are born to have nothing. So from kind of think we cannot say we cannot divide anything. We think we are thinking all same, equal. And also the other way of thinking. Our practices or teaching of knowing contentment, also generosity and compassion and not wasting anything. That we are always practicing and teaching that have deep affinity with SDGs. I think they are important keyword in passing on the universal teaching of Soto Zen in modern society. So back to the back to the SDGs. The level of SDGs achievement is the first is Denmark, the second is Sweden. And 15th, the Japan is on the 15th. But US, United States is 35th. But you know, when I, I came to United States five years ago and I saw the society and I spent the life in here and I, 
I strongly, I strongly felt the America in this country. We already do many things to relate it to the, these SDG SDGs things, but only think we are not think we haven't think about the these. Small things related to these SDGs. So, I want, I want to you. If it's easy to find what is the SDGs in, the, you can find on the internet easily. Just put the SDGs, then click. So. First step of our action, I'm, I'm think, I think the first step of our action is just talk. Also think about the SDGs. Just start from that point because we already do many things related to this. So if you have a time or if you think about that, just take first step. And first step is to know what this what is the SDGs. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center. Please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.